You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. So last week what we saw is Nehemiah hearing um, hearing uh, the news about what's happening. Um, and then we see him actually like, um, so he hears of the trouble and the disgrace of Jerusalem and he appeals to God in prayer. And so it says that he began to actually pray. Uh, and, and so today um, we, we look at the fact that like after he looked out in compassion, he looked out in compassion. What he does is that he, he looks up in dependence to God, on God, looks up and then he looks inward uh, in repentance and then he looks back in gratitude and he looks forward in confidence. Those are going to be my points uh, uh, as, as we walk through this. Uh, and if you can just walk away with one idea, it's going to be this idea here, that prayer should be your highest priority. Um, your highest priority, and if you make it secondary, God is made secondary in your circumstances. If you make prayer secondary, then God is actually now made secondary, uh, but yet it should become primary. And my, my prayer is that as we actually walk through this, we are actually learning also how to actually pray in the difficult times that we actually walk through, uh, how to pray the Bible, how to actually walk towards God and, 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 and pray His promises, how to surrender, and, and how not to be fatalistic, but to pray in humility. Uh, so last week we saw that, that Nehemiah goes and he looks out in compassion. Um, and, and, and here, the question that's there is, uh, that I want to pause in front of you is, where do you go when you're confronted by brokenness? Where do you go? Where do you go when you are confronted by uh, overwhelming situations? Where do you go when you are confronted by uh, debilitating situations, weakening situations? And my prayer is that we would follow also just this amazing example of Nehemiah and ultimately the example of Christ that we make prayer our immediate reflexive response to every crisis that comes in our lives. That we make it our immediate response. Uh, this is what uh, one theologian, William Barclay, says. He says, prayer is not flight. Prayer is not flight. Prayer is power. Prayer does not deliver a man from some terrible situation. Prayer enables a man to face and to master the situation. So you're going to get to see in this passage, like where at the end of the day, like the situation is still existing, but we see him, actually Nehemiah, being able to face and to master the situation because he has gone before God, the maker of the universe. And so this is what prayer does. And like a lot of times when we think about prayer, when we think about prayer, and, and we've always had to, I've always had to now just like maybe try to be a little bit smarter about like, hey, what did you spend the, your day doing? A lot of times if I say to people, I spent the day praying, a lot of times people usually sometimes will, will look at you as if like, hey, you've got to act. 
But yet, actually, our chief preoccupation as believers is to first of all go down on our knees and pray, and then now be enabled to actually look at that situation, not only just with our eyes, but with the eyes of God. With the eyes of God. So his immediate reaction was to pray. So today we're looking at this prayer. What does this prayer uh, entail? A prayer looks up to, in the, to God in dependence. And we see him actually adoring God. And in here, you're going to get to see just like they, there's an acronym on, 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 on prayer. This is a perfect passage that will show you what true prayer looks like. Adoring God, confessing our sins before God, and coming before in repentance, and then like thanking God, and then now coming and presenting our needs before Him. And I pray that you would adopt this way of actually going before God. And this is one of the best, the, the, one of the best ways to actually uh, see that is, is in Nehemiah here. And where we see him actually first of all adore God. Look at verse 1, verse 4. It says, when I heard these words... The words of trouble and disgrace and the, word of, the words of just like his own brothers. And, and he's just so compassionate. He says, I sat down, sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days and fasting and praying before the God of heavens. So he is fasting and he is praying. He is actually coming before, uh, he is coming before this God and he, he looks up to God in humility. And he's saying, and that humility we see it in actually taking days and taking days. Later on, we're going to discover that it's actually five months of taking and going before God. And, and this is like where at the end of the day, like we usually sometimes we, we, we take, we go and we glance at God when we're going through our issues and, and stuff. But here what we see Nehemiah doing, he, we see him going and gazing upon God. And first of all, having to go and, and posture himself in humility before God. And he prays night and day. And, and, and as he's praying night and day, he says this, I said, Lord, verse 5, the God of the heavens. And that, that phrase there, it means sovereign God, the one who is ruler, who is supreme, who is everything. And if I was to define that, define that word sovereignty, it means God is supreme ruler, independent of any authority outside, only authority outside himself. He is the king of kings. He is the one who rules, and that's what it means there. Lord, the, the Lord, the God of the heavens. And then you start seeing him starting to actually now adore God. And he says, I know that I get to see, sit, and I get to sit and serve the, the, the king who looks like he is sovereign. But what we see here is that he doesn't go to the king of Persia that he is serving at that time. Like he goes to the king who is above that king. He goes to the king that is above that king and where it could have been so easy to rush in there. And, and, and listen, when we see here and we think about Persia, guys, listen, Persia was a, was a formidable kingdom. Like, and you read history and what they could do and the damage they could do, the armies that they, that they had and all that. But he now says, no, I'm going to go to the king, the God of heavens, the one who is sovereign. 
And, 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 and some years before that, when Cyrus was king, Daniel, when, when Cyrus was king, when Darius was king, when Nebuchadnezzar was king and all that, Daniel at least lets us know, even in the midst of all the four kings Daniel served, and he uses almost the same kind of phraseology of looking towards God's sovereignty. For example, Daniel 2.21, he says, he charges the times, talking about God and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's, that's, Daniel was always mindful of who God was. Who God was. And this is the heritage that Nehemiah is actually walking into. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. This is Daniel talking to the king. This word is by decree of the watchers. And, and it says this, and the decision is by the command from the holy ones. And this is so that, so that the living will know that the most high, the sovereign God, is ruler over human kingdoms. And what does it do? He gives them, he gives them to anyone he wants. He wants and sets the lowliest of the people over them. And so here we're seeing, he goes before God. And he says, God, you are sovereign. I know that right now Artaxerxes is a king, but you put him there. And I know that there are your purposes that I at work here. But before I do that, let me come before you. And he looks at God and he just begins to adore God. He says, God is this. He adores God's greatness. He is an awe-inspiring God. And he is living in the palace. He is living in the gardens of the king. He is actually tasting of all the delights. But he says, listen, I could be in awe of what I've seen here on earth. But there is actually an awe-inspiring God above that. He is the God of greatness. He's mindful of the greatness of God and the awesomeness of God. And that awesome, awesomeness is he's looking at God who is holy, who is magnified, who is above every single thing. And he recognizes God also as compassionate, the God who keeps his gracious covenant. Right, He is gracious. He is compassionate towards his people. He is a God who keeps his loyalty towards those that he loves. Right, And then he says this, he says he keeps his gracious covenant to those who love him and keep his commands. He identifies God as faithful. He adores him. So he goes before God and he says, God, this is who you are. Like, and and, and I'm going to come before a sovereign God. And he stood and he just like looked at God. And he now says this about this God. He says, God, let your eyes be open. Let your eyes be open. He acknowledges that he is the God of seeing. He is attentive to the plight of his people. Let your eyes be open. And not only that, but he's also a God who's attentive to the prayers of his people and and your ears attentive to hear your servants' prayers that I now pray to you night and day for your servants, the Israelites. And he acknowledges that this God sees that, sees who God is. He sees, he sees what they're going through. And so prayer finds power when we take, uh, it finds power from a, a soul that is immersed in the character of God, who he is and what he has done. 
Like a lot of times we jump straight into talking about what we really want to, and we forget to actually gaze upon his beauty. And that's Psalm 27, where, and where David starts the psalm, and he says, the Lord is the, is the strength, the Lord is, is, my, is the strength of my life, and he says, whom shall I be afraid? Yes, there are armies coming against him, and they're doing that, but what David really longs to do in the midst of that, he says that in the midst of everything that's going against me, he says, there's one thing that I desire, and this, this thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, and gaze upon his beauty. What was that meant to help him with? Like, that's not practical, David. Deploy all the armies. Let them go fight the war first. Well, why is it that we spend more time, first of all, gazing upon him? We gaze. We do not just glance. We gaze because prayer is empowered by in a soul that actually adores God. Amen. So we take some time first to adore God. The question for you and me today is that do you take time to actually spend time when you're in prayer to actually immerse yourself in the character of God, who he is? And if you have a limited vocabulary for that, let me encourage you. There's a, the first class just started today on the attributes of God. Go and join that class. And by the, I, pray, I, I promise you, when you come out of there, there, when you get to know who God is and what he is, in his character, you will find that now prayer just becomes. There's going to be some times where you go before God. A lot of us don't sometimes like, and, and I see this in my life sometimes when, when, when I'm like, I've got nothing to pray for, so therefore I'm not going to pray. There's sometimes when you just sit before God and say, Jesus, I want nothing to do but just to come before you and say, you are amazing. You are holy. You are magnified. You are glorified. You are everything that I need. God, look at what you have done. You made it so beautiful. Go spend time in nature. And not only that, and just not only that, thank God for what he has given you, what he is like, and thank God for, and like, that's actually like sometimes prayer could just be that. It could just be that. You know, I come from a culture that it's pretty interesting that sometimes we, I was telling someone this week that like, um, in my culture, we are people who are, the African people are people of praise. And we just love just like, and so if you come to sometimes our services, our, we are just so, they're full of repetition. And we spend so much more time just praising God for who he is for who he is and what he has done. Even in a way when I sit in, when I would sit in front of my father after eating a meal, I would actually sit and I would actually begin to say his attributes. And I would say, thank you, dad, for giving us this meal. Thank you for working hard. And I would say, Mgandla, Mlinga, all those are my last names, by the way. And all those are like a way in which you are just, you are just, you, you are just saying, I, I am so grateful. 
And, and you begin, and they just start going. And like, you who fought so hard, valiantly, and you did this, you did this, and you did this. And it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and usually dads, like, and dads would always just say, That's, that was a way you say thank you. And they would do that over and over and over, even before a king. When you came in the presence of the king, you started at the gate. The Zulu king, you started at the gate. And what would you be doing? You would start actually saying all his names. Saying all his names. So that, especially even in those moments where you knew you deserved wrath from that king. And by the way, as you're doing that, the king would actually begin to smile. And then he would get grace and mercy out of that. But that's not the only thing we see here. Prayer looks inward in repentance. A reflection of God on God's character. What it does is that it, it, it makes us fully aware of ourselves. And because sometimes we're not fully aware. Sometimes we lack self-awareness and we come with a righteous indignation and we gain perspective when we start looking at God as the one who is holy as the one who is gracious, who's compassionate, who's good. And then all of a sudden, God just starts showing us that behind even sometimes our anger, behind some of our discontent, is actually maybe some selfish motives and all that stuff and all that. And that's what we see here, uh, where he goes before God and he looks at God and he says, you, this is who you are. But then he looks inside in repentance and he begins to confess. Look at, look at verse 6. Let your eyes be, be, be attentive. And, and really, like, what really humbles him here? When he sees who God is, he takes a posture of a servant. A posture of a servant. And I'm telling you, this is one of the reasons why. If you, if you, if you, if you ever need to, like, practice a posture of a servant, practice kneeling in prayer. And because that's, that's what servants do. They kneel. And, and here we see that. And he says, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear whose, whose prayers. He's not coming high, demanding stuff. He's coming in low. And he is low here. He's coming in low, your servant's prayer that I now pray day and night for. For who? For your servants, the Israelites. And it actually, it's a, it's a humble posture. It's a humble posture. This is the posture that you and I, without humility, prayer loses its power. Without humility, if we come and we're puffed in pride, all of a sudden, that's, that's actually what? And it says this, if you show up in pride, demanding God, actually then, even there, it says God actually begins, he, he gets on the other side of the bunker and you get on the other side and he begins to light you up. Right? Because God, what? Resists the what? The proud. And, but he gives grace to the humble. And we see that. That, that. that repentance is not first a confession. It's a posture. It, it's a posture. You walk in and you, you, you posture yourself and you begin. And, and, and repentance and humility is something that we need to actually... Humility is a posture that we need to actually take because even in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. 
That's in the midst of church fights. That's in the midst of actually accusations. I, I implore you guys, get together. Walk along and just get together. And, and, but if, if you are in, coming from a prideful situation, it's going to be hard for you to see what God is doing. But it says that this is what Jesus did. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a what? A servant. And Jesus is going to say later on, the servant is not greater than the master. And so if Jesus was humble, us as Christians, we need to actually take that humility and begin to treasure it. He took the likeness of humanity and when he, when, when, when he came as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death at the cross. And we get to see here that like actually later on it's going to say, it's going to say that, but then God exalted him. He picks him up and scripture is going to be very, very, very clear about the fact that if we want to be exalted, we first have to go low, right? If we want, and this is what he does, his confession is, his confession is intense. It's day and night. As, as he, it's day and night, he prays day and night and he goes before God and he's spending, he makes every single moment he wasn't serving in the palace, he would spend it before the presence of God and he would say, God, like, first of all, search me. Like Psalm 139 says, search me, oh God, and find it's like, it's, a, it's he's taking the big magnifying glass of God's eye and he's putting it and he says, search me God and find if there's anything that's offending in me, right? And then because why? Because that's humility, right? And then we see him now coming and he says, I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. And we see his confession is so honest. And he comes, and first of all, before he can actually just say, and here in his confession, and which is one of the reasons why we do confessions here as a church, and we use a we, even though we know that sometimes you, that might not be you. We use we because that's actually like, that's so biblical. If it's all about I, 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 you're always going to come out so self-righteous and so prideful. But if you then go into a we space, all of a sudden you realize that it's not only just sins that you've committed, it's sins that even people around you. And we see him actually now. He says, I'm a sinner. And he takes a posture of ownership. And not only that, he examines himself and he doesn't detach himself from what's going on. It could be so easy for Nehemiah to say, that's a thousand miles away. I've got nothing to do with that. Can you, this is what they have done. This is what, and so he, he doesn't take a they approach. He takes a we approach. And so he doesn't gloss over his own sins. He comes before God and he asks for, for sins and for, for forgiveness or sins of what he has done. But then he extends it to actually what? The, 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 his own fathers, his own fathers. And now, now he, ex, he extends it also to, to actually the whole nation. He says, we have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands and the statutes and the ordinances you gave your servant Moses. 
And that's like so, it's so beautiful there because sometimes it can be so easy for us to say, I am right in this issue. No, go into all the commands of God and see. That's what even Jesus is saying when, for example, they are about to stone a woman, the, the, the woman who had, who had committed adultery. He says to them, if anyone has not sinned, let them cast the first stone. And even those more self-righteous of them, they start dropping those stones. And that's where Jesus says that, like, be also mindful of the log in your eye. Like, the, 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 the speck in your eye before you see. It, it, it can be so easy to actually take an eye approach, especially in the midst of actually offense. But we see repentance is more than that. He goes, and he's very realistic about his prayer. He's aware of what we say in theology, the sins of omission and the sins of commission. He's aware of the things that, the things that, that, that he has actually like, the, the serious sin, sins that they have done deliberately, but he's also aware of the sins that he has not, that they have not actually done. There's an Anglican prayer that, uh, that, that, that actually reads this, and it's a prayer. It says, merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and also what we have left undone. Repentance takes a whole new form when it's not only just what you have what? Done that you're repenting for but it's also what you have left what? Undone. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah. And he really just he says, we have not loved, we have not loved you with all our heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your judgment for our sake and for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon us. Forgive us, renew us and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways that lead to glory. Amen. And that's actually where we get to see that there are sometimes when we, if we just sometimes are just so mad about what we've just, not mad about what's been done to us, and we forget that like sometimes we need to be repenting about what is it that's been undone there, left undone. James 4, 4 17 is going to say, so it is sin to know the good and not yet do it. Right, when you know and that, that you should have, but you just didn't. And his confession is urgent, and he goes before God, and he identifies everything that is, that, that all the things, and then he says to God, would you forgive us? And he comes to him with this weird mentality. And that just begins to say, God, would you, would you? and he goes there, and the reason why he's doing that is because your compassion will not grow if you do not seek to enter into the plight of those that are actually struggling and that are in the fight. And but not only that, your prayers are going to come from a totally high posture if you don't enter in there. And this is also even just like what we do even when it comes to our enemies. Like with people maybe that like, uh, that, that maybe just have wronged us, that have wronged us. It's hard to love people that we're not praying for. 
Like when will you go before God and you actually begin to say, this is where I was wrong in that situation. Like, and, and, and it's like even the inverse part of it is actually true. It's hard not to love people that we're constantly praying for, right? And this is Nehemiah. He could have just been like, they got themselves in this mess. Look at the history. Like, and sometimes it's so easy to actually just start blaming and actually just saying, I, I'm just not going to have compassion. They got themselves in this. But here we're seeing going in, and he says, he, he prays for them. Prays for them, but he includes himself. And uh, one, of my, one of my friends, Ross Lester, he says this, sometimes we pray for someone because we love them. Sometimes we pray for someone because we need to love them. And sometimes we carry someone's burden because, because I, I carry someone's burden because I love them. And sometimes I carry someone's burden because I need to love them. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing, carrying the burden, owning even some of the sins that he knows that he has actually not even done. But he owns his own sins, owns the sins of them, uh, uh, them as well. But then he goes beyond that. He then looks back in gratitude. And this is where the power of his prayer comes. And he looks back in gratitude in thanksgiving here, where he focuses on two realities. Look at these two realities that he does. He rehearses what God has said. Look at verse 8. Please remember what you commanded, what you commanded your servant Moses. And then here is actually now he's quoting God back his words. And this is the importance of you being immersed in God's word. He brings the promises of God before God as a way to appeal to God. And he's thankful for the promises. The best thing we've got as the people of God are the promises of God. Amen? He goes with those promises. And he says that, God, you said, if you are faithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. And this is what's happening. That's why I'm here. I'm here in, in Persia right now. But if you return to me in humility, and if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your, your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, he's talking from a thousand miles away. He is actually praying from the farthest of horizons, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I chose to have them dwell. And he's praying on behalf of Jerusalem here. He takes the promises of God. You and I are called to, when we find ourselves in times, we adore God. We go into the scriptures, into the infinite well of his character. That, and we go into the scriptures and we, we pray to him in adoration. We look to ourselves and we confess our sins. But then we go now and we see, we look and we say, what has he promised? What has he promised? And this is the good news. What has he promised? All God's promises for you and me in Jesus Christ are yes and amen, right? And so he takes the promises of God and he brings them. He quotes God before God. And God loves that. God loves that. He brings them and he summarizes everything. And he says, God, you say that you would bring us back. You will bring us back. And then now he actually goes in verse 10, he goes deeper and he says that, and, and God, and you did it before. You did it. And so he says, you said it and you did it. Look at verse 10. And, and they are your servants. 
And your people, he's talking about Israel, and he says, and you redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. That is the most repeated phrase in the book of Exodus where God says, I will bring them out of there with my great, with my great power and my strong hand. This is God flexing his muscles and saying that I'm going to bring them out. And Nehemiah takes that and he goes and he says, God, I'm so thankful I came to the right person. Remember what you said? But not only that, remember what you did. God, I've seen, I've seen you swing your, 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 your arm before. And I know that you are the God of chaos. And you KO'd Pharaoh. I know that no one can stand in the ring with you and, 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 and win the fight. I know you humbled Pharaoh. And so therefore, who's Artaxerxes is before me? Therefore, what is this problem? And so he goes before God. And he says to this God of wonders, this God who did all the plagues and who parted the seas and who fed his people, who gave them a night torch at night and then who gave them a cloud so that they don't get burned by the sun, who gave them manna, who gave them bread so that they had enough and who was so patient with them even though they complained nonstop and this God who took them and delivered them to actually the promised land, right? The God who could, who could in the midst of the heat of the battle make the sun stand still and, 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 and as long as they were reaching out to him, as long as Moses' hands were up and all of a sudden they would see actually and as long as and then they would see the battle going down in the valley change because he is a God of wonders. He is a God who is a mighty warrior. Jehovah El Gibor, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He's going before this God and he says God I'm so thankful I'm coming to the right one and for you and me it's, it's even beautiful in the gospel because we're coming before the one who has conquered death hell and the grave who has actually made a public spectacle of Satan and all his minions and he has come and he has, he has rose again and he rules triumphantly as our sovereign savior today all his promise all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ Christ. Do you realize how much, how much we're thankful for? We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the fact that there's nothing that can stand against us that he cannot defeat, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? In this life, you will have troubles, John, John 16, 33. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So therefore, prayer is not a weak posture. We are going before this one who has actually played the best of, the, 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 he was made the best move in Jesus in defeating anything that could threaten us. What could separate you and I from the love of Christ? So we, we, we come out of this so thankful. We go before him and we're so thankful. And we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, right? For the joy laid before him, he endured the cross and despising the shame. And he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and this, is the, this is what we are called to look towards him, right? We look towards him. And then after that, we know that he's able to save completely. Hebrews 7, 25. 
And we know that those who come to him, he leaves to make intercession. And then we look towards him for, for, we look towards him for what he has said and what he has done and what he is doing. He's interceding for us. And then also we look towards to what he will do. What he will do when we're looking forward. One of the reasons why we do our blessed hope every single week where we say, look forward. There's going to be a day he's going to come. And this is what he will do. Revelation 21, 4. We're thankful for the, the fact that the victory that the victory in Christ is already decided and it is already won and it is final. It says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Can you hear that? We're thankful that he said this. Death will be no, no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And he says, come, 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 come. Behold, I've made all things new. Right? And then after that, prayer looks what? Forward in what? In confidence. Can you see this? Looks upward in, in what? Dependence. Right? And says, God... Who are you, God? Adores God for who he is and looks to him, looks inside, what? In repentance. And, and then not only that, like now, and it looks back in gratitude. Why? Because it's important. It's important for you to actually be able to go to the past and what he has done. That's what this is all about. And then we go to what he has done. And now then we can now talk about what's really troubling us. Look at verse 11. Please, Lord. I love this. Please, Lord. Please, sovereign Lord. Please, mighty God. The one that I know will not fail us. The one who I know is my rock. Let your ears be attentive to the prayer. Look at this. Listen to these prayers of your servant and to that of your servants who delight in revering your name. And I love this because... What Nehemiah does also in here is that he realizes that he's not the only one who's praying for this. He actually realizes that as he is humbling himself and he's praying, maybe it's also Hanani and all these brothers that have come and they're praying. And this is the importance of corporate prayer. He recognizes that this prayer that he's praying is not only just him by himself. He says this, the prayers of your servant, me, and then the prayer of your servants. It's important to come together and to pray for things together. And he recognizes that, like, guys, I can't pray for these things by myself. And then so he invites everyone and he says, let's pray. The same thing that Esther, Mordecai says, he says to, to Mordecai, to, to Esther, he says to Esther, hey, go and pray. Go, let's actually all fast and let's pray. And while you're praying to approach the king, we'll be praying with you. There's a corporate nature there. And, but he says something about actually the, all this that has been going on. He says that because He's looked up to God and he's looked inside and he's looked back. He says, we delight in revering your name. And he says, God, we delight in, in the fact that you are more feared than anything. You are the most weighty. The weight of your glory is unmatchable, right? And he says this, Give your servant success today. Five months going back and forth, adoring God, 
thanking God, confessing. And now he says, God, give your servant success today. Grant him confession in the presence of this man. I love that. Because here, what you get to see, he, this is what he's been actually hiding all along. Why is it that like, he looks and he says, in the presence of this man, who is this man? It's Artaxerxes. He doesn't say in the presence of the sovereign king. What is so beautiful about that is that more time in prayer helps you. Wait, wait, wait. Listen, listen to this. This is what Ed Welch says. He says, when people are big, God is small. And when, pe- when God is big, people are small. All of a sudden, they just become mere men. Yes, he recognizes that he could, the king of Persia could actually deploy armies and literally wipe anything. And he has decrees upon decrees. But at this moment, he says, this is mere man. Give me. And, and, and he says this at this time, I was king bearer. And he's saying that God had positioned me right there as the right person to talk to the king. But I'm not talking to him as king because I just came from the king of kings. I'm talking to him as a man. But he's saying, God, would you, would you give? Would you do that? And so he's coming. And, and the reason why he's saying this man, he recognizes that he is the greatest obstacle there. What obstacle is he? He's the obstacle because in Ezra chapter 4, that's the same king that stopped the building of the gates. But now he's asking, God, would you actually reverse the decree this king has made? And God, only you can help me with that. Right? And he waits on God. He waits on God. And then he brings everything. Then he says, God, would you actually give me success? And, uh, and the beautiful part about this book of Nehemiah is God says, yes, I will. Yes, I will. And this is actually why for us, even as New Testament believers, I love the writer of Hebrews. In chapter 12, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And then in chapter 13, he says this. He says, I know there might be other sovereign saviors you could try to run to. And he says this, you need to fight in each and every way to be free of them. Keep your love, your life free from the love of money. Because money sometimes divides. Now, in fact, it does divide. Livelihood, all those things. Be satisfied with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor abandon you. And he knows that obviously Artaxerxes has all the provisions, but he is running to God. And he says, God, you made, you made a promise you will never leave us. No, actually what? Forsake us. Therefore, so that what? And I love this. So therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's like really at the end of the day, if we're not careful, a lot of times we will, like when trouble comes, 
we will scatter all around, right, with covetousness and discontentment, and it'll cause us to try to scramble around, try to help ourselves. And but what it does when we try to help ourselves, run first to, to king instead of run first to the king of kings, we rob ourselves of the confidence of declaring God as our helper in such a way that God is so big and everything is small all around us. I'm going to end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. God, the Holy Ghost, the Ghost, the Holy Ghost writes our prayers. God, the Son, presents our prayers, who presents our prayers before God, and God, God the Father accepts our prayers. And with the whole Trinity to help us in it, what cannot prayer perform? With the whole Trinity, what cannot prayer perform? The Spirit moves us and teaches us how to pray. When we do not know what to pray, with sometimes groanings, right? And Jesus says, with the finished work of the cross, I'm going to take these prayers and present them in, and that's why we pray in his name, and then God accepts them, and then he then fights our battles. With that in mind, what cannot prayer perform? And I pray that you and I will be a people of prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace, your loving kindness. Thank you that, Lord, we can come before you, adore you. And Lord, thank you that, Lord, you are able to search our hearts and we can come and confess before you. Thank you that you promise that if we confess our sins before you, you are faithful and just to forgive us through the, your son's work at the cross. And we're so thankful that, Lord, we fight from victory, not for victory. And, Lord, we are so thankful that you are attentive to all our prayers. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of His Son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.